The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday the 9th of December. Professor Mary Louise McClaws talks about the Omicron variant and what the implications are in the near to medium term future for Australia and the world. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to talk to you about living with COVID. Challenges and predictions for frontline healthcare workers in 2022. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the Bejigal people, the traditional owners of the land in which I work for the University of New South Wales, and pay my respects to um, elders past, present and emerging. So I'm going to talk to you today about Omicron, about what we know and what we don't know, and there's an awful lot we don't know, for particularly for um, primary health care. Uh, global situations and vaccine equity, and in fact, it's more like vaccine inequity. After your vaccine, do you need a booster? And children, the new risk group. So let's go to Omicron, what we've learnt. So South Africa very kindly, very early on, a number of days ago, identified to the whole world about what they'd learnt. So the group on the on the left-hand side of the screen you'll see uh, is a professor from uh, one of the multiple groups, the centres that provide um, data and uh, analysis to the, uh, the network for genome surveillance in South Africa. And he has identified, and others, that during the previous um, peak for COVID, that it was mostly Delta. And then, of course, during mid-November, um, they started to identify that something had changed. So they had their first case on about uh, the first week of November of Omicron. And at that stage, it was referred to as B11529. They had identified it across all areas of South Africa. So there wasn't a particular area of concern. But then they noticed an enormous increase. About 74% of all of the sequenced uh, samples, and there weren't that many, only a few hundred, were something new, this B11529. And so they told WHO early on, and then WHO put it on the list for a variant under uh, monitoring. And of course, it very quickly became a variant of concern. So on the left-hand side, you'll see uh, two figures, one underneath each other, and look at the red, and that indicates the proportion of those sampled that were Omicron. And you can see underneath the very rapid spike of that um, B11529. So it still hadn't become the dominant strain at the time but it was increasing rapidly. Now, you have to remember that in South Africa, only 24% were vaccinated. So it is very difficult to decide, is this a variant of concern because it is more transmissible? 
but it really was labelled a variant of concern because of the genome um, changes. So this slide shows you, of course, the three uh, spikes. And of course, it, it went down in case numbers and then spiked up rapidly. Of the small number that they have um, examined, 74% of those that have been sequenced have been found to be the B11529. There is an advantage on growth between 24 to 37%. Now, that can be difficult to interpret. It could be that this puts people at more at risk of a reinfection rather than being more transmissible. So we still don't know whether it's more transmissible uh, because there's only a small number that have been done so far. On the left-hand side shows you what this um, uh, spike protein structure looks like. And uh, most of the changes to this uh, um, virus has changed in the spike protein structure of S1. And I've given you a green square around the S1. And that's the one that connects to our cells. And that has two immunogenic regions of change that uh, include three amino acid additions. And this could be problematic. The other change uh, to S2 subunit is still undetermined about the importance of it. But the, there's two uh, furin cleavage site changes, and we don't know whether that will increase the binding and then the fusing in onto our membrane. But previously, it has uh, improved the binding and the fusing. Uh, so we'll, we'll watch this space. And then, of course, there are other changes that may have impact on um, this uh, variant of concern uh, escaping our um, immune response that's been given to us either by a natural infection or vaccination. So there's still a lot we don't know. Is it more transmissible? Do we need less virus? Is it a mild infection mostly or not? Uh, all of those are unknown because of the small numbers to date. So the good news is, maybe the good news, is that unlike Delta, the RDRP, otherwise known as uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase uh, changes are so, uh, that have been previously associated with a high viral load and a reduced CT level may not be the case with this one, which is good news because it might mean it's less infectious as Delta or it could be just as infectious. We don't know. But the other good news is, is that the changes may, may not impact the ability for either the PCR or the rapid antigen test uh, to pick up this virus. So that's great news. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Well, hello, my name is uh, Professor Robert Boy. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist, and I especially like to talk about uh, vaccination and the prevention of vaccine-preventable diseases. There's a very real risk that a whole bunch of viruses will be imported, but influenza is the most concerning. Suddenly, when we shut the borders in March 2020, mm. flu went away, and we haven't had a flu season now for two years. And that is really, really important because there's no natural immunity out there uh, nearly as much as there was. And also the influenza vaccination rate 
in 2021 was really quite low. People were so busy getting themselves COVID vaccinated, they didn't get their flu jab. So the combination of two really quiet flu seasons, very quiet in Australia, and a poor level of vaccination in 2021 against influenza mm -hmm. means that there's a great many people who are much more susceptible to influenza than usual. And I would predict that we'll get at least a moderate season and probably a big flu season. 2017 and 2019 were both big influenza seasons in Australia. We've now had two quiet ones. I would predict fairly strongly that we're due for trouble in 2022. And it's probably gonna start early in 2022 as well. So what we do have already is a lot of vaccines from last year against influenza in people's fridges. Now, because flu hasn't been transmitting, it also hasn't been mutating. When flu is in anyone's body, it can change its spots within a couple of days. It's an RNA virus that mutates very easily. A COVID takes more like two weeks in a chain of transmission to get a meaningful mutation. Flu takes more like two days. So because flu has not been transmitting, it won't have mutated terribly much. And so the vaccine that we've had all year and in our fridges still, if we suddenly got a surge in December, January, people who are at risk, especially 65 and above chronic medical conditions, they may well benefit from a flu jab, a booster, especially if they didn't have one last year, if they forgot. So those flu jabs in your fridge might actually turn out to be useful in uh, December, January, if we suddenly get the surge that I'm worried we might have of influenza. And then we'll have new flu jabs available from March. And they, of course, have been updated and uh, they would be appropriate to use from March. As of the 6th, there were 43 countries and this will change. This has changed dramatically just over four days. And at the moment, there are 905 confirmed cases. And interestingly, yesterday, South Africa had the majority of cases and the UK now has the majority of cases, not by many, but more. And that could be because they're doing more testing. So it's still um, of concern whether or not this is more infectious or whether or not with the UK, they don't have a high enough vaccine coverage yet. So there are possibly nearly another 49,000 cases out there. Most of the Western European countries, as you can see on the, on the map, have identified that they have at least one confirmed case. In Australia, there are currently 16 confirmed cases, but that may change. So don't get um, uh, wedded to those numbers yet. So going over, what do we know? We know that the spike protein had 32, at least 32 changes that happened all at once. I think that's what caused a great deal of concern. The E484K and the N501Y that have previously been associated with faster transmission and immune evasion could be problematic, but it could be exactly the same as what Delta is um, showing us at the moment. The S protein change with the two furon um, cleavage site mutations could indicate that this particular variant of concern has greater binding and faster fusion, but it may not be the case and it may not cause more 
uh, infectivity. We still don't know. The other things that are unknown are the severity, and people keep talking about mild cases. But I'll take you to the table that I've made up here, and that's based on what was known as of today, and it may change tomorrow or the next day quite rapidly, that 56% of cases in South Africa are young adults, the 20 to 39. So that's re one reason why it might be mild. And 18% are, between, are the middle age, the 40 to 59 years of age. And there's only 4% of 60 and over. So if it is just like Delta and it can cause severe infection or long COVID, we still don't know. So don't assume that this is going to be milder than Delta. Let's hope it is. So we don't know the transmissibility. We don't know the pattern yet of whether or not it will pick on people who've had uh, natural immunity and haven't yet been vaccinated. And I would suggest that you remind your patients if they had have, if they have had um, infection, that they need to get vaccinated at least within six months because this particular variant of concern has been found to be twice as likely to cause a reinfection with another variant. We don't know if it's causing immune evasion. Now, Delta has reduced vaccine effectiveness, but it stops us from dying and it stops us from getting severe infection. Therefore, we might find exactly the same thing with this. So there's too little yet of the, of the data to really know whether it's more or less successful in um, you know, uh, supplanting Delta. Is it going to replace Delta? Far too soon to know. Does it have more or the same mortality? We don't know yet. So it's sadly a wait and see. The worldwide pattern is very similar to, of course, um, the uh, South African pattern, that it's picking on the young adults. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. So when I mentioned reinfection, South Africa very, very rapidly went back quickly and about the 27th of November and looked back 90 days and identified uh, any potential infection uh, of Omicron and whether or not the current cases have had previous infection. They used a hazard ratio. They also looked at whether or not it's more likely to be reinfected with Delta or Beta. And of course, these uh, relative hazard ratios show you that it's no more risky with Delta or Beta to be reinfected with another variant, another strain. But with the Omicron, uh, between the 1st of November and about the 27th of November, uh, that was um, compared with the wild strain. And it looked as if people were uh, twice as likely to be reinfected. So encourage your patients to ensure that they get a vaccine. So one of the conclusions by one of the experts from South Africa said um, publicly, Omicron variant is associated with substantial ability to evade immunity from prior infections. In other words, other uh, strains. So um, watch this space. Uh, let's hope that um, people who do get Omicron don't get uh, another infection with another strain or have had another strain and are therefore liable to get Omicron. Uh, because remember, your immunity to, for a natural infection usually only lasts about six months. It's not lifetime. 
Now, Atagi and the Chief Medical Officer presented last week to uh, a group of us that they don't want to change the booster shot um, regime uh, to anything before six months. They want to know what the effective R0 is. They want to understand about the unknown viral load. But at the moment, good news is that it may not cause a higher viral load. They want to know more about age related to hospitalisation and severity and breakthrough infections. Therefore, they have not changed the timing of the booster shots because they want to know um, about whether or not if they move having the booster shot before six months, that that will impact uh, your antibody response because they know from uh, previous uh, lab tests uh, run by the Kirby Institute and of course the Israeli experience that if you have your booster shot at six months then of course you um, supercharge your immunity. However, as an epidemiologist I don't agree because if you have high circulating virus, Israel, I'm going to show you in a moment, explained to us that they had a hundredfold increase in risk of uh, cases from previously um, uh, vaccinated um, older patients and that about 60% of, th of those that have been vaccinated went to hospital. So as an epidemiologist, if you have a spare dose that you don't want to throw down the sink, uh, ask yourself, it, does your patient have um, additional health issues? Now TGA approves of early vaccination before six months if a patient has additional health issues. But I'm going to show you why I think that that booster shot should be given somewhere between four and a half months and five months. Now we know that vaccination reduces mutation. We know that in Australia, for example, the little blue um, um, square down there is unusual because we were under very heavy restrictions, unlike any other country on that graph. However, vaccination does reduce uh, the um, risk of developing mutations in the country and masks and, of course, physical distancing. But we're going past that at the moment. And we're even going past uh, testing and tracking uh, and you know contact tracking. So we will be mostly relying on vaccination. Now, WHO aims for 40% of populations across the world to be vaccinated by the end of the year. And sadly, they won't get there unless wealthy countries like Australia donate vaccines. They have an aim for 70% of the uh, populations across the world to be vaccinated by mid-2022. And I hope that they can get there. So we should have an aspirational level for Australia at 90% and I'll explain why in a moment. So let's have a look at the global situation. So we're going into the fourth wave. Some countries are going into the fifth or even sixth wave. The total number of cases globally are 256 million cases globally. And each week they get 5.59 uh, million cases. The deaths are about 5.1 million deaths. And in one week alone, there was 51,000 deaths. We are in Wipro, the um, Western Pacific region. And at the moment, the case numbers look stable. They haven't been updated yet for December. 
But the highest number, sadly, is in Vietnam at 66,000, Malaysia at nearly 41,000, and the Republic of Korea, South Korea, as we call it, is nearly 20,000 cases. So that's in just one week. The deaths increased, sadly, by 29%, with the Philippines having the highest deaths for that week at 1,631. This is a public health announcement on behalf of the Immunisation Coalition. Pertussis vaccinations protect our seniors. The fatality rate for pertussis aged over 50 is higher than for one to five-year-old children. Despite this threat, pertussis vaccination coverage in over 65s is unknown. This contrasts with influenza vaccination at 80%, pneumococcal vaccination at 40% and shingles vaccination at 25% coverage. As with all adults, people over 65 should get pertussis vaccination every 10 years. Protect against pertussis. So, vaccine efficacy and vaccine equity. So yes, we know vaccines aren't perfect, but gosh, they stop death rates. So if we have a look at the European region versus the Southeast Asian region and the Western Pacific region, which we're in, but our neighbours are in the Southeast Asian region, we can see that, of course, um, Europe has about 87% fully vaccinated and 13% having had just their first dose alone. But of course, that ranges dramatically depending on uh, whether or not that European uh, countries are high income countries. But on average, about the vaccination, full vaccination level across Europe is for those European countries is about 51% on average, the median. In Asia, the Southeast Asia Pacific, it's about 30%. And in the Wipro area, it's about 64% on the median but you can see the great range. And in Europe, 39% more um, population than the Western Pacific region, our region. And of course, um, you know, a lot of those countries are very wealthy. So that's why uh, they've been able to, of course, increase on average their um, vaccine uptake. The, they are 4.4 times more likely to be fully vaccinated uh, compared to, to us. And in the Southeast Asian area, 63% of more um, targeted population, the eligible population, um, are there because, of course, the Southeast Asian area have young population. Uh, but they have about uh, a quarter fewer uh, fully vaccinated people in their population. Now, we can see that Delta took over very rapidly. It's now dominant across the globe. And uh, in four months, it took uh, just four months to take over from any other variant of concern. So 100% of those countries that sequence cases now have Delta at 99% or more. So the future um, displacement of Delta is quite worrying. So if it only took four months for Delta to become the dominant case around the world, how fast will the next one take that long or even shorter period of time? Or will it be more infectious and more deadly? Let's hope not. So that's why we need the whole world 
to be vaccinated. And at the moment, the low-income countries, the total population that are fully vaccinated are 2%. And I really think that South Africa is really an important lesson for us to uh, impress upon the authorities the importance of us giving vaccines to our neighbours, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, our Southeast Asian neighbours, as well as Africa. So you've seen this one with, of course, the importance of vaccination reduces mutation. And, of course, uh, as I mentioned, Delta took just a very small time to take over any other variant of concern. And the next one that displaces it is more likely to be even more transmissible. So just to remind you about Omicron, which we don't know if it has increased binding, we don't know if it has increased transmission, and we don't know if it has increased ability to evade our immune system, or whether or not it has a shorter period once somebody gets it to become um, that uh, peak of viral load. That's just a reminder of why your patients need to be vaccinated because these are the top uh, countries that have visited Australia. We are multi, um, a multi-racial, multi-faith, multi-cultural community. About 42% of Australians have had a parent born overseas or have been born overseas. So we are going to receive our family and friends all the time and we're going to go to countries. So on the right-hand side are the top 20 countries. And at the moment, a number of those countries have Omicron as well. So the UK, we have a lot of UK um, coming and going. And at the moment, only 68% of their population has been vaccinated. And this is why we need to do testing when people arrive on our shores but we don't. At the moment, we haven't changed the rule. They are tested three days before they hop on the plane. A lot can happen in three days. They can go through a hub in Doha or Hong Kong or wherever, and if they meet other travellers who are um, unbeknownst to them, um, infectious and not wearing a mask, and I was on a plane the other day, and there I was surrounded by four people wearing a mask under their nose. So the airlines are not being able to enforce mask wearing all the time. It's very difficult. Singapore has 92% of their population vaccinated and they learned and demonstrated to us that when they were at 81% of vaccination that they had an enormous spike. Why? Because 81% doesn't mean 81% across all age groups and sadly those that were foreign workers and the young were not vaccinated at that level. So we need to ensure that when we talk about a proportion of the population being vaccinated, the group that we really need to focus on are the under 40s. They have carried the burden of not just Delta and not Omicron at the moment, but the wild strains as well. And they're the ones that really need to be vaccinated. So we are often asked to use Belgium and the UK and Denmark and Iceland and others to be those countries where we learn from them because they're doing a great job. Well, Australia is doing probably an even better job. Our vaccination rate is quite remarkable. And I think that's because the Australian government in the past has done a carrot and stick. 
for the zero to four years of age being vaccinated. And it's up to 95%. It's absolutely stunning. We are one of the world's leaders in vaccination. And that's because you, the healthcare worker, and the, the population understand that we get vaccinated not just for ourselves, but for everybody else. But there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy overseas. And so, sure, we need to learn from some of these countries and we need to understand how they failed and why they failed, rather than thinking that they're the ones that are doing quite well. And in fact, I'm now going to talk about why we need booster shots and why we need to compare not with Belgium, but actually with Israel. So I'll just remind you that the vaccine efficacy has dropped with Pfizer. It's dropped from when we had alpha at 88% against symptomatic disease to 79%. But you well know that that doesn't mean that it doesn't protect you from hospitalization, severe illness and death. It's fantastic. And so is actually AstraZeneca. It only protects us 61% from symptomatic infections, but my gosh, it protects your patients from death and hospitalization. But everybody's holding their breath to see whether Omicron actually reduces that even more. And that's why I think we need to really think very carefully about boosters. And, in, and I'm so pleased that the government is rolling out boosters to everyone not just the elderly or the immune suppressed like the UK. So we've actually learnt to do things independently from overseas because we've seen their experience with Delta. The UK had very unpleasant experience with Delta very early on in April, May, June. So we do know that Delta increased its transmissibility from alpha by 60%, and alpha was already more transmissible by 50% to any of the previous strains. It has an early um, viral load at about four days, and uh, before that, the viral load was at about day six. But any variant of concern that replaces delta is unlikely to be able to replace delta and have a slightly longer um, what we call latent period, that period of infectivity. So it's going to be as early as four days or potentially earlier. So Israel has boosted about 44% of its population at the moment and other countries are coming into that idea of vaccination. Uh, that third dose, WHO calls for the elderly, the third dose, and for the rest of us, uh, they call it um, a booster shot. So why do we need to learn from Israel? Well, before they had the booster shot, uh, they had a wave, a third wave with really high numbers in July, August. The elderly had started to be vaccinated in February. By February, they'd had their second dose because they started rolling out in December. And then they noticed a hundredfold increase in case numbers in just 1.5 months. And there was a tenfold increase in severe infections in one month. And 60% of, of those that went to hospital with severe infection were vaccinated. So what does this say? It says that your immunity from the vaccine does wane at six months. So if you have a look at the graphs down below, this was uh, Israel presenting to us. At, I'm on a WHO 
um, Committee for Infection Prevention and Control of COVID, and they were showing us their, the evidence of waning uh, immunity. They also showed us that, of course, like um, Australia, the great work that has been done at my university uh, by the Kirby Institute has shown that, of course, if you wait six months, you are twice as likely to have your immune system to protect you than if you have your booster shot earlier. However, if you look at the graph underneath, it shows that the elderly, the 60 and over, at six months, pre, so they'd had their second shot six months ago, had a greater um, infection rate uh, than any other time. In other words, their immunity was waning. Yes, it's a great time to give the booster because then, of course, your immune system is supercharged with that third dose. But if you've got a high circulating level of infection, then you've waited too long. And this is what happened in Israel. So the next group for the elderly was at 5.5 months, so five and a half months uh, previously they'd had their second dose. Now, if you look at the younger ones, remember the elderly were vaccinated first and across the world, this interesting compassionate pattern of rollout has always been to the elderly first and then the young. However, we know that it's the young adults who have always had the greater burden. And I would like to think that eventually most um, authorities will realize that when they've got a new booster, that the group they need to roll it out to first is the young adults. Because if we can ring fence them with protection, we can protect the elderly by protecting the young first. But that's very much an epidemiological approach. It's not the compassionate approach at all. I love the elderly, but if epidemiologically we want to stop the spread, your patients who are under 40 should be your first priority but they often aren't the way we roll, the way you're given vaccine and under instruction. So if you have a look at the 16 to 59 year olds, that sweet spot for infection was at four and a half months. So yes, you get greater protection the longer you leave it from the, when you had your second dose. However, if you've got high circulating virus, the longer you leave it, the greater the risk of you becoming infected. So 4.5 or four and a half months, the, there was a two-fold increase in case numbers versus um, having uh, um, uh, only had um, two to three months um, previously. So the Curie et al. experience showed that at the vaccine effectiveness, so vaccine effectiveness is when you're rolling it out to the real world, if you have a look at where you start on your vaccine effectiveness um, or vaccine efficacy in phase three trial, let's say we talk about Pfizer and it was 79% against symptomatic infection. At six months, that drops to 50% protection against symptomatic infection. If you vaccinated your patients with AstraZeneca and they're given a 61% vaccine efficacy against symptomatic infection, by six months that's dropped to less than 40%. At about six months, uh, there's a drop in about 50% uh, for both AstraZeneca and Pfizer. So um, yes, they found, Curie found previously that a, about eight months 
uh, your um, immune decay uh, starts uh, to, to drop off. Um, however, given the fact that six months is a long time, and yes, the longer you wait for your booster, the better your immune response to that booster, I'm concerned that if we do have Omicron circulating in the community, and of course we're not going for um, elimination anymore, that we really do need to think about um, shortening that period between the second dose and this third dose. So getting back to the Israel experience, you can see that the yellow um, uh, histogram was the non-boosted. They'd had two doses versus the booster shots for the absolute rate of confirmed infections per 100,000 risk days. So, you know, there's great evidence to show uh, from the Israeli experience, both infection and severe infection, that risk drops dramatically with booster shots. And then they started rolling it out to the younger ones. And as you can see on the bottom at the left-hand side, the rate of infection started dropping dramatically. So who's giving booster shots at the moment? So if you have a look at the Israeli one up on the um, left-hand corner, their booster um, uh, protection rate is quite high. And then you have a look next to it and then the New Zealand one, they've only just started rolling it out uh, to, for the elderly. Um, the Australian is starting to roll it out. You can just see that little green snake down the bottom, but it's a little bit too slow. And as you can see also, the uptake of rates of um, vaccine, we have done a great job, but we still have a proportion of people who are slow to come to their first shot. The UK are starting to increase their um, uh, booster shots, and so is the US, but not very fast. So just a reminder, Atagi says at least six months, but in special circumstances, five months. Um, and, you know, Israel decided five months for everybody. Um, and uh, one of the reasons they gave me is because Pfizer has only asked for the booster shot to be approved at six months. Um, and of course, AstraZeneca is not preferred at yet as the booster shot and mix and match we knew quite some time ago with the Oxford study that just with even two doses, AstraZeneca followed by Pfizer, or even Pfizer followed by AstraZeneca was better than AstraZeneca followed by AstraZeneca. So um, they believe, Targi believes that of course we'll be able to uh, receive the flu shot um, co-administered uh, with the vaccine shot, which is great. So let's go on to children now. So just a reminder that one failure of the system, let's not blame the, the driver. It was a system that failed him and all of Australia and New Zealand. One man was not tested or vaccinated and his family was not vaccinated as a frontline worker, very sadly. And that has caused at least 185,000 cases, both in Victoria and New South Wales and over a thousand deaths. And in New Zealand, one traveller, because we didn't close our borders, when New, when New South Wales had 54 cases, one person went to New, um, uh, New Zealand and of course they've got over 7,000 cases so far and they're never going to be able to eliminate Delta. 
Now, as a reminder about how serious Delta is, from the UK, very early on, they were showing that when they were just starting to experience Delta from May, June, from June to July, there was an increase for five-year-olds to 12-year-olds by 1.05. Um, but there was a third increase, third um, the. 33% increase in the 13 to 17 year olds. Why? Because then they weren't vaccinated. So if we leave any group unvaccinated, the virus will find them. Now at the moment in New South Wales, um, I've, I've used the data from uh, up to the 13th of November because at the moment, New South Wales government hasn't given us the exact number and I had to go back to up to the 13th of November for the exact number to do the exact proportion of cases. But as you can see from those two um, graphs, it's the same. Nothing's changed much over those two week period. But the median age with pre-Delta was 37 years and the median age with Delta is 28. And that will get even younger if we don't start vaccinating our young fast. So the case burden between the zero to 19 years of age, pre-Delta, it was 8%. When Delta happened, that went up to nearly a third of all cases. The case burden between zero and 39, pre-Delta was 48% and then zoomed up to 70% with Delta. So if you have a look on the, on the right-hand side, you can see again, the young are at greater risk because of their social and work mobility, but also the young were not offered the vaccine until September. And of course, the 12 years to um, 15 were offered it on around about September 13. So they're taking some time to catch up uh, through no fault of their own. But I think that the children have been underestimated. Now, forget about all the numbers because it looks quite complex on the left hand side. However, what I did was I had a look at the number of people who have tested uh, for each of those weeks. And sadly, New South Wales Health doesn't give us the actual numbers anymore. But this was when I did it for when the testing rates were at the highest because they've dropped a bit uh, from about 120, 130,000 tests on average per day over a week. It's now down to about 69,000 per day. So when I looked at it at the very highest testing, the zero to 19 years, the testing rate was 80 per thousand for that age group. And the 20 to 39 was 290 per thousand. Now the population for the zero to 19 is, you know, at about um, 242 per thousand. And the 20 to 39 is just only slightly higher at 287 per thousand. So in other words, the zero to 19 year olds represent about 84% of the population of the 20 to 39. So yet they represent with testing just 28% of the testing rate of the 20 to 39. So in other words, the young have been under tested and therefore they may have had mild case, but you know, most of them might have been mild but we needed to improve our testing to identify just at what risk the kids were at. Now, we know that the 12 to 15 have started to really um, 
uptake the vaccine and we were at a high level at 280,000 injections per day. That's dropped because we've reached a really great rate. So what have we reached across all of Australia? Well, of course, because it was a compassionate rollout, the um, 59 years of age and over are over about 90% or over of coverage. Fantastic. The 16 to 39 look great at 81% and the 12 to 39 look great at about 80%. But if you drill down, you can't assume that that coverage crosses all of the teenage groups or the young adult group. So when I looked at it for the 12 to 15 year olds, there's only 68% around that who've been vaccinated. And yet we know that they represent a large proportion of cases. They really should have had the mini hubs in their school uh, campuses to make it easy for the parents and of course offer it to the, to the parents as well. The 16 to 19 year age group have only been covered at 78% because they were really only started to be vaccinated in September. And the 20 to 29 years are only vaccinated at 78% for that age group. So when your patients come in, if they're 29 years of, old, of age and younger, ensure that you've offered them the vaccine and try to explain to them that they have a greatest risk of acquiring Omicron or Delta than any other age group, um, the young group, because mostly everybody else older than them will have been covered for the vaccine and they won't catch it. Now we really do need to go for herd immunity. Now that's a tough one because herd immunity, the calculation is, is on vaccine efficacy and, uh, the, and of course the R naught, the transmissibility of the virus. So if you have a look down the bottom and the horizontal axis, that's the R naught, that transmissibility. Now Delta starts at about five and can go quite high to about eight. So for every person with Delta, they can infect five others to eight others. So if you have a look, the five years and over age group represent about 94% of the population. And the government has announced that they have approved vaccinating the five to 11 year olds, which is fantastic news. If we can increase the coverage for the five to 11 year olds, we could get close to herd immunity. So we need at least 86% of the population being vaccinated, the total population across the zero and older group. So that's about 86%. But in other words, the five years and over um, are the ones that will be vaccinated and they will do all that hard work of um, getting us to the herd immunity level. And of course, vaccinating with that third dose will also help us get there. So, is this going to be a problem vaccinating kids? Well, I think unlikely. People talk about vaccine hesitancy in Australia, but I don't believe there's a great group of vaccine hesitant people in Australia. As I've mentioned before, you know, we have 95% coverage of the zero to four year age group, which is fantastic. But there are different people. And when I do, when I'm outside of pandemics and I do patient safety, I learned that there are about three different types of personalities for taking on board a patient safety practice. There are the early adopters, then there are the middle adopters who adopt because the early adopters have shown it's okay, nothing bad happens. And then there are the later adopters and they take quite some time 
to come to the decision. Now, it doesn't mean they're never going to. But what you have to understand is with your patients who aren't vaccinated yet, they're not necessarily, unless they tell you they're anti-vaxxers, they could just be waiting for more evidence that the vaccines are safe. So it's really up to you to explain to them that sadly they don't have the time they normally have to make big life decisions because this virus isn't going to give them time. Now, a study out of the um, uh, ACT came out and said that 94% of Australians have already been vaccinated or are willing. Now, we've found that, of course, our vaccine rate is spectacular, but it could be improved. But when they asked parents and carers about whether they definitely get their kids vaccinated under 18 years of age, 79% said, sure, they would. So the younger the child, though, the more um, they will think about this a little longer. But remember, rubella has an R naught the same as Delta. And when you hear people say, well, this doesn't often cause children to be hospitalized, neither does rubella. But why would you want a child to have rubella? Now, measles is very high, R naught, and so is mumps. But why would you want a child to have an infection, measles, mumps, or rubella, when it doesn't usually take them to hospital? Because these infections are, are very difficult for them to get over takes them a long time, they miss out school, and their parents, of course, have to stay home and look after the kids as well. The same with Delta. So it will be foolish if we consider that the clinical presentation for children will remain the same. We don't know. And that's why I think it's important that if we've got a vaccine, something is vaccinatable, then vaccinate the kids. Stay safe. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.